song of praise uh, that Mary expressed after she had heard that she had been chosen to become the mother of the Messiah, and her cousin, Elizabeth, and her visited. And it's just this beautiful idea and this beautiful image that we get is that these two women of God, don't, don't miss this, don't read too quickly through this, these two women of God were chosen for some very beautiful, beautiful roles. It is incredible to see this, that Elizabeth, her son, would be John the Baptist, and Jesus would come from Mary. So you get these two women chosen by God to play a very beautiful role in this plan of redemption that we celebrate during Christmas. And so um, this morning, what we want to do is we want to unpack this song and take a look at what is here in the the context of it. And uh, in your scripture, you may have a heading that says, uh, Mary's Song of Praise, the Magnificat. And that's not magnify cat. Uh, It is, is, (laughs) you kind of look at that and you're like, what? What what in the world does that have to do with anything? But what's interesting is that this is a hymn that's broken into two parts. And if we see, we'll take a look at it. The first section is actually 46 through 49. And that's a personal, uh, it's a personal thing that's going on there. That Mary is saying, here's my praise. I praise the Lord and here's why. And then verse 50 begins this corporate, uh, you know, here's this idea of what God does for more than just her. So there's this personal, then there's this corporate, uh, you know, dissection, if you will. The hymn can be divided into those two parts. But the Latin is where we get that Magnificat. And it's this interesting thing that it literally is just the first, uh, first sentence here. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord. If you were to read that in Latin, that's where you would get that, that word there. So that all that is is it's saying here's what the first few phrases are. And that was back in the day when the Bible was in Latin. Uh, none of us were around back then. But the Bible got put in Latin around the 400s, and it got stuck in Latin until the day of the Reformation, right? When the Reformation came about, and uh, we saw that the Bible was able to be translated into many other languages, German, English, and, and, and many others as well. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack this doctrine that I want to put before you, and that is true praise flows from a true knowledge of God, our Savior. True praise flows from a true knowledge of God, our Savior. And along with this line of thought, I also believe that when our hearts are filled with love and thanksgiving towards God, out of our hearts, praise freely flows. But what we can't have is we can't just have all heart and no truth. Even if we're zealous for it, even if there's a lot of passion there, if, if it lacks truth, we have to ask the question, is it truly praise? And so what I'm going to argue this morning, and I think it's explicit in this text, is that true praise really does depend on a true knowledge of God. And what we will see, I believe, is that Mary knew the word of God, and she knew God personally. That is the foundation of this song of praise. There's nothing else that we can, we can say is the foundation of this other than her knowledge of the word and her personal knowledge of God uh, for herself. And she knows him in a unique way that no other person in the world has ever known God. Think about that. You know God in a way that no other person has ever known God because he knows you personally. You know him personally. And Mary specifically, the case was true for her as well. And so when she's looking and she says, God, I know you, and I praise you because of my knowledge of you, 
and not only that, what you've personally done in my life. And it's such a beautiful thing. But I want to ask you a question before we get started this morning, and I want to put it on the screen. If all a person had to know God by was your praise, how well would they know what God is like? Think about that. If a person had nothing else but your praise, how well would they know what God is like? And this is a good test for us, and I want to revisit this a little bit later. But I believe that this is insight into what we see here with the praise of Mary, that if all we had was Mary's song, I'm going to say we have more than that, but let's just imagine all we had was Mary's praise, we would still know a lot of truth about God. And so the question that I ask you and I ask myself, if all that anyone else in the world had to know God by was my praise, how well would they know God? And that's a good test for us as we get started this morning. So the two stops that we're going to make is theology and song. We're going to take a look at the theology that is present in the Song of Mary. And then the second stop that we're going to make is theology and practice. So theology and song, and then two, theology and practice. And so what we learn uh, through Mary's song is we actually learn a lot about theology. And if you remember, theology literally means the study of God. And so I ask the question, do you know God? So if my premise is, is true praise flows from a true knowledge of God, I have to ask, do you know God? Do I know God? And when we start to talk about whether or not we know God, we have to talk about theology. And I think a lot of us get this, this wrong. We think that theology is for those people in academia. Theology is for those ivory tower debates, uh, big, large volumes of books, but the truth is, is theology literally is the study of God. And every single Christian ought to be involved in theology. Now, I will grant you that there's different levels, right? And a, a preacher should, should teach theology. Now, you're going to teach theology different in a pulpit versus in a lecture. That's true. But the premise is the same. Every one of us ought to be striving for a deeper and more accurate knowledge of God. Why? Because the knowledge of God is what enables us to praise him accurately. Remember whenever Jesus encountered the woman and she said, where should we worship? Should we worship here or there, right? And he says, there's a day that's coming where the Father will seek those who worship him in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter where you worship. What matters is what is the content of your worship? Is it true or is it false? Because if you start to believe that you can worship God, yet be false in your doctrine, be false in your theology, if you've built this picture of what God is like and that is a false image of God, what you literally are doing is practicing idolatry. Do you hear me? If you build an image of God that is not true, that is not accurate, and you worship that thing, you are not worshiping God, but you're worshiping something that you have created. And this is human nature. What we do is we like to think that God is like what we like. <laughs> Isn't that true? We like to think, here's what God is like. He is like this, and here's all the things that I like, and the things that I don't like, God doesn't like those things either, right? As if we are the ones who get to decide God's preferences. And we say, I am a whatever, um, middle-class American, and here's what God likes, because that's what I like as a middle-class whatever American, and then we, we seem to forget that God transcends cultures. God transcends time. God transcends economics. 
He is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. And so what is our job? Our job is to know him truly. And when we know him truly, we are therefore in a position to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so as we unpack Mary's song, I think we're going to see a lot of theology. And the first thing that she starts out with is this beautiful idea. She says in in verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. All right, let's stop there. Do you see what she's doing? She is praising God. She's magnifying him, admiring him, lifting him up. And she is rejoicing in God, who she recognizes as her what? As her Savior. And I'm not going to go into this, but this is clear evidence that Mary saw herself rightly before the Lord. Mary did not, I do not believe from Scripture, this is why I believe this, that she did not see herself as a sinless person but she saw herself as one who also needed salvation. She needed to be saved. Why do you need to be saved? Because you're a sinner. So Mary was not lost on this concept of what she was and who she was before an almighty, perfectly holy God. She did not say, I praise you, God, because we are equal, perfectly holy, perfectly set apart, and there's none like us. That's not what she says. She says, I magnify you, and you are my God, and you are my Savior. So she rightly recognizes who God is, and she rightly recognizes her need for God as her Savior. But this is the beauty of it. What she does is then she goes and outlines some attributes of God, some things about God that she recognizes and she praises God for. So remember, um, when we talk about praying, It is very good for us and fitting for us to spend some time in our prayers just simply admiring God. Don't thank Him. Don't request things from Him. Don't even confess your sins. But start out with admiration. Admire Him. And don't admire Him for what He's done for you. Admire Him for what He is and who He is independent of you. That you're beautiful, God. That you're holy. You are merciful. You are tender. You are righteous. You are holy. And true, you admire him. And that is what we should start with every time we come to God in praise and in prayer. Admire him. And that's what she's doing. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So a couple of things that she says here. First, let's put up on the screen. Verse 47, she says, the God is a Savior. Then we see, we look a little further down, we see in verse 49 that she says, for he who is mighty, so God is mighty, he is strong. We see this in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He is the giver of good things and doer of great things. We see that back up in 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and, his whole, and holy is his name. Then we also see that he is a helper. We see that in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Do you see that? He is merciful. We see that in verse 50 as well. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And he's also a promise keeper who speaks. And we see that back again in 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. 
There's so much here. So I ask the question, if all we had was Mary's song to know God by, I believe we would know a lot about God. We would know that he's a savior, that he's holy, that he's mighty, that he's strong, that he's a giver of good things and a doer of great things, that he's the helper, he's the one who remembers, he's a redeemer, he's merciful, he's a promise keeper, and he's one who speaks. That is a lot. And you could unpack every one of those much further. I'm reminded of Francis Schaeffer who says that, that there is a God who is and he has not been silent. He is not silent, meaning we can know about him because he's revealed himself to us. And how has he revealed himself to us? But that he is holy, that he is a mighty, that he is faithful, and he's merciful. Because we can know a lot about God if we look at creation. And, and, and here's, here's a little something for you to, to, to think about, to ponder. Is believing in God enough? We've already laid that foundation many times, and I'll never stop saying that. Belief in God is not enough for salvation. But God gives evidence of his existence so that none will have an excuse. So in Romans 1, we see that he says that everything declares that there's a creator. You can know things about me through what I have created. But here's the thing. The thing that we don't get from creation is we don't get redemption from creation. What we get from creation is that God is great. He is mighty. He is incredibly powerful. He's incredibly intelligent, creative. You get all these things. We get, we get this picture of God. But what we don't get from creation is that he has sent a Savior to redeem us from our sins. You only get that from particular or special revelation. When he speaks in a special way that is different than his creation speaking, pointing back towards him. And so what we have to look at in every one of these, when we start to unpack it, we have to remember, I believe this beautiful point, point eight, I've listed eight things that I find here in her, in her praise, but that God is a promise keeper who speaks and we have to ask, what promise is he keeping? What is this that she's referring back to? The promise was back, do you remember when Abraham was called? It's really good for us to remember back how this whole thing started. Because what happened was that God saw all the people in the world, and there was no Israel. There was no chosen people. Do you get that? There just was people. But for whatever reason, according to God's infinite wisdom, he said, here's one person. I'm going to go reveal myself to that one person in a way that I have not revealed myself to anyone else. And that was Abram. Do you remember that? And Abram came, I mean, God came to Abram and said, hey, you're going to go somewhere. I'm going to show you this land and yada, 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 right? He doesn't tell him where. He doesn't tell him what's going to happen. But, he's, but he gives them these promises, and he says that you're going to have children that are greater than the number of the sand and the, and the beaches and the shores and the stars. And he, he says, look up, see all these stars, see how numerous they are. Your offspring will be greater than this. And he's like, show me. But there's a long time that passed, right, between the promise of God and it being fulfilled. But also, remember, the covenant was given with Abraham. And back in those days that they would take an animal and they'd cut it in half and they'd split it. One side would have part of the animal, the other side would have part of the animal. And then the two parties who were, who were making this covenant, this commitment, this pact, 
this contract, if you will, would walk through the split beast, then they would say, if I don't keep my end of this, may it be that I become like this animal, that I will be cut in half, that I will die. My life, I swear on my life. But when it came time for God to make a covenant with Abraham, and who was Abram at that point in time, what happened? He put Abram to sleep. And he says, I alone pass through because based on me alone shall this covenant be kept. It's not based on Abram or any other man's performance, but it's based fully and, and, and completely on the faithfulness of God who will keep his promises. And Abraham had this roller coaster, didn't he? Sometimes he would trust God and he's like, man, I'm your man, let's go. The next minute he's like, no, I don't know her, she's my sister, I guess. Then he's like, oh, okay, yeah, no, let's not do that anymore, okay. And then he's good again, and then he's like, well, I got this plan. How, you know, yeah, my wife came up with this interesting idea. Maybe, maybe the maidservant is the way, right? Okay, yeah, signed up for that. Then Hagar, Ishmael, right, that whole thing. And he's like, well, God, if only this one could be your chosen one, right? As if God hadn't thought about it. And he's like, well, you know what, yeah, you kind of messed some stuff up. But I see your plan's better than my original plan, Abraham. Yeah, let's go with that one. Right? No. He says, no. There will be another one who will be truly from you and your wife, Sarah. So God is faithful, even though he's, sometimes it seems like he's delaying. And what we had was we had what appeared to be God delaying. In, in history, we see that then they end up in Egypt. And then things were going well, and then we remember in Scripture that those who came to power in Egypt forgot who Joseph was. And so he enslaved Israel, but Israel multiplied. And, and just put yourself in their shoes. What was happening during that time? They're, they're probably like, where's God? 400 years, okay, did anyone live start to finish for that whole thing? Was anyone there from the day that that started to the end when they got freed? No, people were born and died. In that 400-year period, not seeing the fulfillment of the promise of God. And literally sitting there thinking, is this it? But what happens is that God's promise transcends any one of us. Do you get that? That God is faithful even if we can't see it. And he will carry to completion his plans even if it's not in our lifetime. But here is a woman, Mary, who gets to see the fulfillment she gets to see what was promised long ago. She gets to not only see, she gets to participate personally in one of the most intimate ways you possibly could participate, giving birth to the Messiah. Can you imagine that? So after all of these years of seeing what seemed like God delaying, then there's this period of silence. We see between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it seems like God doesn't speak. There's nothing really happening. And then, boom, here comes God with a message. And it comes to Mary. And it's communicated to Joseph. It's communicated to Elizabeth and Zechariah and many others that God has spoken once again. And I'm reminded of Hebrews. Remember it says that, uh, in times past, that God has spoken to our forefathers in many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. God spoke through the prophets. 
but in these last days, he speaks through his son, Jesus Christ. So I believe that when she's looking at him and saying this in 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. I think that's what she's talking about. I think that's what she's referring to. So the question is, do you know God? And if only someone had your praise, if that was all they had to know God by, how well would they know what God is like? But I am inspired looking at this, and we look at what, what, what Mary is laying before us, that God is a savior, he is mighty, he's strong, he's a giver of good things, a doer of great things, he's a helper, he's one who remembers, he's merciful and a promise keeper who speaks. But there's other two more relationships that I think we should observe before we move on to theology and practice. Do you see in verse 48, as well as in 52b, that there's this contrast of humility and favor? Those are actually together, but then there's contrast with pride and judgment. So humility and favor. Here's a principle for you. It's all throughout scripture. God opposes the proud. <laughs> that is something you can take to the bank every day. But he uplifts the humble. He is on the side of those who are humble. And remember Mary? Who is she? Like in the economic status of the world, who is she? Nobody. Okay, let's walk through this. She's probably mid-teens, 14, 15, 16, we're not sure. But she's young, okay? Not even old enough to open a checking account <laughs> in, our, in our day, okay? Not old enough to vote. Not old enough, in our terms, to serve in the military. Not old enough to really probably work in a full-time job. Okay, so that's, that's what we got there. But then in their time, remember, back in their town, if you will, a young woman who's unmarried? Who are you? You're, you have no status. And did she have any money? No. So God chose what would be a seriously weak vessel in that culture to be glorified through. And it, and it wasn't missed on her. She wasn't like, I see why you chose me. You are so smart, God, because I am somebody and I'm going to do you some good. She's like, your humble servant. You see that? Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That word is slave. We sanitize things in English, but that word is slave. For he has looked on the humble estate of his slave. That does, that's politically incorrect today, isn't it? A woman identifying herself as a slave of some man, some male whatever, right? Now God is more than a man. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, man, to clarify that. But that doesn't feel good in our culture, does it? That doesn't feel, that's like no way. But there's this beautiful submission. Why? Why was she able to submit to God in this way? Because she knew that he loved her. And she recalls, he says, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. 
And she says, you want to know what else God is like? And he is merciful. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. You want to know what else God is like? He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. We see this clear picture painted that God opposes the proud and he gets great joy and honor in choosing humble things to be messengers of his love and mercy. That is the gospel. Literally, that is the gospel. That God sees it fit that those who have been humbled, that those who have been crushed, but restored through the mercy of God that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, sees it fitting for those who have experienced that humbling, those who have benefited from mercy, those are the ones who are now qualified to be the ones who go out and preach mercy. And it's such a beautiful image. And so never forget this, that God has this thing in it's never a mystery those who are proud will be humbled and those who are humbled will be exalted never forget that but let us move on to our last stop as we close up this morning theology and practice so i've made the argument that theology is all throughout this song the point of theology is to understand and know god and what I'm arguing for is that true praise flows from a true knowledge of God, our Savior. And if you don't have a true knowledge of God, you can't truly praise him. So I, I, I hope that you see this, that we have to know what God is like. We have to have true thoughts about him, true beliefs about him. And how do we do that? But what we've got to do is we've got to put theology into practice. Because theology is not meant to be something that's up here in the theoretical world. But what we should have is theology, meaning it's something to be put into practice, not simply known. Theology is not known alone. Theology must be practiced. And a couple of things that I think that we should really come back to every time when, we, when we're thinking about this. Where is my theology being practiced? How can I practice theology? First off, have you ever thought about this? But trusting in God for salvation is literally theology and practice. Theology in practice is trusting God for salvation. Why? Because you have to know something about God. You have to know something about man. You have to know something about redemption. If you don't know that you are a sinner, that's theology. If you don't know that God is holy, that's theology. If you don't know that he has come to make a way for you to be redeemed, that's theology. If you don't know that upon Christ alone should you trust for your salvation that's theology, then you can't be saved. Do you get that? And now you, could, you could draw a continuum from zero to PhD. Zero meaning I don't know anything about God at all. And then PhD, theoretically, I should know a lot about God. Where on this continuum should you say that there's sufficient knowledge for salvation? Well, you can't really put a point anywhere on that, all right? But it can't be zero. It can't be zero. You can't know nothing about God. You have to know something about God, and that's why we preach. That's why we share the gospel. That's the job, to go to those who have not heard, and that's what Scripture says. How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can they preach unless they are sent? So how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel message? Why? Because we go to preach to tell people about God, to take them from knowledge zero to something more than zero, because you can't trust in nothing. 
You trust in a person. And that's what we want to do, is introduce you to the person of Jesus Christ. And the biggest, most important question any person in the world could ever answer is the question, who is Jesus? A lot of people want a piece of Jesus. But who is Jesus? That is the question. So theology and practice first is trust in God for salvation. Rely on his strength for help and provision and promise. And then also rely on his mercy. I think this is part of what we have to do as Christians is to remind ourselves of the gospel daily. One of my favorite passages of scripture is 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. It says, blessed, right? Praise, blessed, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So we don't just hold to the gospel one time, but we remind ourselves of the gospel daily, that because God is merciful and tender towards me, he has caused me to be born again. And the same love and acceptance I received the first time I came forward and trusted in him is the same love and acceptance that sustains me every day of my Christian walk. It is not by grace that you are saved before, and then once you are saved, welcome back to the law that you've got to perform. You are saved by grace, and you are kept by grace. It is by faith alone that you are saved, and it is by faith alone that you are kept. It can never be reduced down to your performance. So theology in practice is knowing the gospel and reminding yourself of the gospel every day. But also, I remember the thoughts from Paul in Philippians 3, 8. He says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So we say, who is Jesus? Have we trusted him? And do we count everything else lost compared to knowing Jesus Christ? That is theology and practice. So theology is meant to be practiced, not simply known. But then also, do you know theology and practice is also being humble? You ever thought about that? How can being humble be theology and practice? Because we're relying back on that truth, that theological principle that holds true, that God opposes the proud. Remember? So theology and practice is not real theoretical stuff. It's real practical stuff. If I know that God opposes the proud, that he will break the proud, that he will scatter the proud, that he will make them low, as soon as I start to see pride creep up in my heart, theology and practice is to pray, Father, may I be humbled. May I be humbled. Because no way, no how do I want to be one who opposes you. Because I know when I'm proud, you oppose me. I don't want that. So theology and practice is to be humble. And you know what? Mary gives us a pretty good model of that. She has such a beautiful role to play, and she doesn't let it go to her head. I don't know about you, but I might be tempted. I haven't thought too much about this, but I might be tempted. If someone said, Rob, 
God's got a job for you, and it's going to be such an important job that when you participate in this work, the whole world will be open and blessed. The this, this salvation will be possible for those who trust in Christ. But you're going to play a significant part in this. Put yourself in that. God came to you and said that to you. Might you think, hmm, I'm going to update my resume. That's pretty good. What have I done? Well, I just played a pretty important part in saving the world. But Mary didn't do that, did she? She's like, man, oh, wow. God has looked on his humble servant, and she stayed humble. That's the beauty, theology and practice. Literally, it's not complicated, folks. Being humble is theology and practice. And then third, theology and practice is praising God. And I want to put this on your screen. I've said it, but I want to repeat it. Fill your hearts with love and thanksgiving towards God and watch it turn into praise that flows freely from a humble heart. When we fill our hearts with love and admiration and thanksgiving towards God, when you practice that, freely from that praise will flow because your heart is humble and thankful. I mean, I don't know what it is, but lately I've just, I love where we live. And we don't live like in a super fancy place. Anyone's ever been to our house, it's not, it's just a house in Claremore, right? But I love it. And I have just recently, just last night, you know, I'm sitting in my house, I'm just sitting by my fireplace, and it's just a little humble home, and I'm just like, I love this place. I'm walking, and I'm locking my back gate, and I look out of our little property and my barn and my other barn, and I'm just look, and I'm saying, man, God, you've been so sweet to me. You've been so good to me. I'm so thankful. And I'm like, man, God, let me never get to the point where I look at this stuff that you've blessed me with and think, hmm, you've done right. I, you kind of owed me that. Never. I never want to get there. Because when we are humble and we are thankful, that's theology and practice that leads to the theology and practice of praising God. And remember I said earlier, admire God not just for what he's given you, but part of praise can be thankfulness and what he's done for you. He is a doer of good things. And he's done good things to us and for us. And where I want to close this morning is this idea of trusting Christ. And as we close, I want to remind you that praise is more than a song. It is a response to knowing God. So as we close this morning, I ask you to stand. And I want to leave you with a couple of challenges. And that challenge is to consider that question I asked you. If all a person had to know God by was your praise, how well would they know God? But in that, I want to also ask you the question, how well are you doing at putting theology into practice in those ways that we just looked at? Trusting in God for salvation, relying on his strength for help and provision, relying on his mercy. And how are we doing in being humble before God? And how are we doing truly praising God? And if it's true that I can only praise him really when I'm praising him in spirit and truth, how well am I doing when I look at that? But here's the thing. I think this very clear from what we look at with Mary, that as you go through this, she knew the word of God. And one of my prayers for Calvary, one of my prayers for 
this group is that we would know the word of God, that we would trust the word of God, which includes believing the word of God, but that would translate into obeying the word of God because that is absolutely what we are called to do as children of God. So I'm gonna put that out there for us to think about this next week. Do I read, trust, believe, love, and obey the word of God?